Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf. I am your host, and I am in Hoi An in Vietnam for my last day of this month-long trip across Asia which perhaps we'll talk about in some future week. There's a lot going on, obviously. Uh, and we are joined today by uh, Julia Yaffe. Who, where are you, Julia? I'm in sunny, humid Washington, D.C. In sunny, humid Washington, D.C. Also in sunny, humid Washington, D.C., we've got Ed Luce. And Nick, I assume you're in Cambridge? I'm in the People's Republic of Cambridge, Massachusetts. Nick Burns, Ambassador Nick Burns in the People's Republic of Cambridge, Massachusetts. Let me start by let's talk a little bit more about North Korea, since we have a little bit more clarity than we did two days ago when we did the episode, and then we'll sort of broaden out from there. Nick, I just I'd be interested in based on everything we know right now, what your take is. David, thank you. Um, I think you have to give Donald Trump. His, credit, his due here, some credit, especially critics like me, um, he was right to turn towards diplomacy over the last couple of months. I think he was right to meet with Kim. It was unorthodox. Um, but I think this process now that's under uh, underway with Mike Pompeo is already beginning. The negotiations trying to bring Japan and South Korea in, that's all to the good. Um, and we're certainly far better off the world um, talking and debating about whether diplomacy can be effective compared to where we were seven or eight months ago, where there was a probability, high probability of some type of conflict between the U.S. and North Korea. So I think, you know, Trump deserves some credit. But, David, that was a paper thin joint statement that they released, Kim and Trump. Um, there's very little substance in it. There are no commitments that I can see from the North Koreans certainly no complete, verifiable, and ir irreversible dismantlement of their nuclear program. The language from 1992, 1994, and 2005, much stronger than the Trump administration was willing to get. I think that was a huge disappointment. And you have to think, David, is, um, is, is President Trump overselling this? He's talking about the imminence of peace, he tweeted out very unwisely, foolishly, rashly yesterday from, from Andrews Air Force Base that um, there is no longer a nuclear threat from North Korea, which is completely untrue. I worry very much uh, that he is not only overselling the results, but he's in the process of deifying Kim Jong-un. Now, it's one thing to be polite. You want him to be polite if you're meeting another world leader. But to say he's a nice guy. And he's a tough guy. And uh, to disregard completely the brutal nature of the North Korean regime, this is a big mistake by Donald Trump. And, and especially, David, when you juxtapose that 
to the terrible, offensive, unprecedented way that uh, Trump has talked about Justin Trudeau, uh, about some of our European allies. This has been a really bad week uh, for American global leadership. So I hope the administration can do something here. I'm not against trying diplomacy, but it was not a strong start. Well, do you see, Julia, you know, Nick was showing us what a great diplomat he is, and he started out on this kind of upbeat note um, and then headed sort of on and on uh, towards uh, uh, what I think is a growing consensus about this. But where do you come out, uh, having, having, having been watching all this unfold for the past couple of days? Well, I, I have to say I, I agree with Nick where you have to give the president uh, credit where it's due, but so far it looks like, you know, he was successful because he gave the North Koreans what they wanted and didn't ask for all that much in return. So, yeah, it was easy to get that deal. It also reminds me a bit of some of Trump's real estate ventures, where he's great at striking the deal, but it's very kind of 30,000 feet, <clears throat> excuse me, and uh, it's up to the others to work out the details and how things actually get built, and um, and a lot of those real estate projects, as we know, have run into a lot of trouble, including fraud lawsuits or you know things that just don't work out. It, it, I think he's big. He's good at the show. He's good at striking that deal, but not so much at the detail of uh, the details. Um, Ed, you know, I I think Julia's point is a good one. Trump's really good at opening up and announcing things and not so good at actually following through and making them happen. Um, I, I, I think he was so eager that this announcement go well that he's made all sorts of concessions, um, uh, whether it was the way he treated Kim or the event itself or touting it as a big success or defending Kim or... Or, or, or suspending military exercises without getting really much in return. And I would add, you know, one of the things that strikes me in, in response to what Nick said is a lot of the belligerence and danger associated with this um, situation with North Korea actually came from Trump. So he's sort of celebrating not behaving the way that he was behaving. So here we are two days later. What's what's your take, Ed? Well, I, I mean, I, I think that this kind of sets up the ultimate test of, of, of whether Trump's rational or not. I mean, the tweet that he, uh, as Nick mentioned, um, uh, fired off when he touched down from Singapore in, at Andrews um, on um, Wednesday, uh, where he said that there is no longer a nuclear threat from Korea. Now, if he actually believes that... Um, you know, you have to assume he doesn't actually believe that because Korea has just as many uh, nuclear weapons um, on Wednesday as it did on Monday. Um, if he actually believes that, then, you know, that, that would kind of be a very, very strong piece of evidence um, in, in favor of those who argue, look, he's a reality TV president. This summit with Kim was, you know, celebrity leader meets meet celebrity leader, an extraordinary sort of moment of, uh, of reality TV diplomacy, um, but he doesn't have much of a grasp on reality. Because if, if, 
if if the reality is he needs now to secure a verifiable, comprehensive, irreversible uh, nuclear disarmament of North Korea, uh, then he's got to do all kinds of things out, out of the Klieg lights. Um, he's got to work China very hard. He's got to work um, Kim very hard. He's got to empower Secretary Pompeo um, and his team to really get into the nitty gritty to get a sorts of the sort of deal that would look better than the Iran deal that Trump pulled out of last month. Um, and so we do, in a way, have the ultimate test of is 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 Trump rational? And I know a lot of people would automatically dismiss. Of course, we know he's not rational, but. Uh, rationality is simply a test of can you marry means with ends. Uh, and if he believed a half of that tweet, then he's not rational. Um, and so, you know, here is the ultimate test. That, that's, that's the way I see it. Well, I don't know that, you know, I mean, I think one of the things Trump's demonstrated is that he doesn't really feel like he has to believe what he says. He feels like he has to say what will, will, will benefit him. But, you know, Nick, one of the rational things that somebody has said, and this was Pompeo, is that it's going to take a couple of years to get to any kind of concessions, uh, of material concessions out of the North Koreans, which is essentially saying, here's our plan. We are going to suggest we've arrived at peace here, launch into a process, and push off till after any elections, uh, any real judgment of whether the process is working. Is that too cynical an interpretation? Well, I think, David, you're right. Pompe Secretary Pompeo's right that this is going to take years. Um, here, here's a comparison. It took us 10 years to get the Iran nuclear deal, whether you support that deal or not. I supported it. But I was part of the Bush team that started the process in 2005 with the Europeans and the Russians and Chinese. And it took Obama and Bush 10 years. North Korea is arguably harder. They have nuclear weapons. They are very unlikely to give them up. And so I think you have to measure this in years. This may go well beyond a Trump presidency if Trump turns out, as I hope, to be a one-term president. But it does get, uh, David, to a very important thing that the president missed this week. And that is we have allies involved here. If you look at that, and I have to call it this, almost a propaganda video that the National Security Council made and Trump showed to Kim Jong-un about horses dashing through water and people in fields and the brilliant future that Kim could have and Pyongyang could look like Singapore in the next three months that he would just give up his nukes. You remember that video. Who was missing from the video? Moon Jae-in, the president of South Korea. The video produced by the Americans was two great leaders, Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un, are going to bring peace to the world. It is far more important that the South Koreans be front and center in these negotiations. They have everything on the line much more than we do. And as you know, in, in negotiation, it's a lot about leverage. What we need to do is build up our leverage against Kim during the negotiations ahead. And, and that means getting South Korea and Japan fundamentally involved here, having them push against the North Koreans. And I, I fear that as a negotiator, President Trump gave up a lot of our leverage. It was foolish to say that we would suspend our military exercises, which the president foolishly called provocative war games. That's the Chinese North Korean language. Foolish to give it up without getting anything in return. Those are actually important to make sure that we can defend South Korea. So we gave up a lot this week. We didn't get much in return. I worry we're giving away the leverage. And Ed and I both referred to this 
extraordinarily unwise tweet that somehow from President Trump, somehow that North Korea is no longer a nuclear threat. If he believes that, then what's the basis for sanctions against North Korea? Why would China or Russia or any other trading part, potential trading partner, agree to maintain sanctions? I think the president for his, as Ed says, this reality TV moment on the big stage in Singapore has really given away too much too early in these talks. Well, yeah, and Julia, he's given up, you know, some big things and some little things that are looming large, right? You know, bouncing around the Internet this morning is a picture that purports to show Trump saluting a North Korean general, um, which, you know, dovetails with the way that he's treated Kim. And I think, you know, in some ways sets up some of the rest of, of the meetings he's planning. He's talked about having a summit with Putin what do you think Putin is looking at this North Korean display and Trump's behavior? And, and, and how do you think he's reacting to it? Well, I, I think Putin is kind of um, confounded by all of this because, well, first of all, it, it, it's not just a picture. There's video of this. And they go kind of, uh, Trump goes to shake the guy's hand. He salutes him. Then he goes to shake his hand and Trump salutes him. It's very kind of Monty Python. The BBC has posted video of this, which, in my mind, immediately uh, invoked all of the criticism President Obama got for bowing to the Japanese premier, for bowing to the Saudi king. And, you know, uh, the conservative media said that he was apologizing for American power and bowing down to these leaders. And now you have a guy, now you have a U.S. president saluting, uh, you know, uh, uh, an official representative of a regime that has modern-day concentration camps. It's, it's wild, to put it diplomatically. As for Putin, I think, you know, I think he's, it would give him hope that Trump maintains this kind of, um, I would say, childish obsession with strong men. I think Macron and Trudeau would be better served if they were more like uh, De Gaulle or Putin. If they were, you know, authoritarians or dictators, I think Trump would respect them more. Uh, that said, you know, while all this was happening, while Trump was inviting um, Russia into the G7 or back into the G7, and as we're posting today, uh, we got a big scoop with BuzzFeed about how Trump at the G7 dinner was saying to, you know, the, to Merkel, to Macron, was saying, you know, give it up. Crimea is, is Russian. People there speak Russian. Why are we even dealing with Ukraine? It's one of the most corrupt countries in the world. Uh, at the same time, his administration was literally at the same time releasing new sanctions on uh, four different companies and three individuals working with the FSB to penetrate American cyber, um, cyber systems, including targeting underwater communications cables. So it continues, I think for the Russians, it's really confusing because it continues to be this Janus-based um, policy where Trump says one thing about how much he loves Putin and how much he wants to meet with him and how he should be back in the, in the G8 or the G7. Uh, but his administration continues pursuing a pretty tough and hawkish policy against Russia. So I think in Moscow, there's still a lot of head scratches. We look at this, obviously, the Russian reaction is, is, a, is an interesting one. The Chinese play an absolutely critical role in this. 
And you've written a little bit about the fact that we're, you know, we're coming up against Trump threats in the next, you know, perhaps day to start levying new set of tariffs against the Chinese and launching a trade war with the Chinese at a moment when they're playing an essential role in this negotiation. And I'm wondering how you see that playing out. Well, the the, the list of um, products, $50 billion uh, worth of products of Chinese exports that the US trade representative um, is drawing up is, is scheduled to be released on Friday. Um, so uh, tomorrow when we're podcasting, and that's still on schedule. Um, and this will you know, slap 25% tariffs on Chinese, various Chinese strategic goods. Um, now, if Trump goes ahead with this and imposes the actual tariffs as opposed to just uh, publishing the list, this will be an escalation in the trade war. And it sort of opens up two new fronts. One, one is, well, he's, he's uh, put tariffs on the allies, as we saw you know, the G7 summit, he didn't back down on that. Canada, Japan, Europeans and others. So the Allies are already in the crosshairs and um, that um, trade dispute is escalating. If he now includes China, it sort of becomes essentially a global a global trade war. Um, the, that, that's sort of one front. Another is, of course, he desperately needs China. He desperately needs Xi Jinping um, if he's going to put teeth, uh, if he's going to put flesh on the bones of this very vaguely worded statement that Kim and um, Trump came up with in Singapore. And without China, um, that, that's simply not going to happen. So if he goes up, launches and escalates a trade war with China, just when he needs China's help the most, um, you know, this poses another rationality test. Does Trump does Trump actually want to do what it takes to get a to get a, a deal with Kim Jong Un, some kind of a verifiable agreement, denuclearization agreement with Kim, and and we will see. Um, uh, you know, I, I I think the America First agenda can be stripped down to two things. Um, it, in terms of Trump's most sort of recurring, enduring instincts, one is. He doesn't want, um, he, he, he wants to re repatriate manufacturing jobs to the United States. And so he wants a 20th century trade war um, over all products, um, you know, that aren't actually coming back and that is hopelessly romantic. But this is a view he's held for 40 years. And the other is he doesn't want Kim to have nuclear weapons that can target the US mainland. Those are essentially the two irreducible Trumpisms. And uh, they kind of clash with each other because if he goes if he if he goes into a full trade war with Trump or with with China, um, uh, they're not going to cooperate. They're not going to cooperate on North Korea. They're going to lift the sanctions. Ninety percent of North Korea's trade is with China, um, and Kim will get the economic benefits, and it'll be very hard to move back to the situation of maximum pressure that brought Kim to the negotiating table after this. The GD will be out of the bottle. So, you know, Nick, and, and, and after Nick, and we'll go to Julia on this and Ed, but, you know, we have a tendency to go and respond to these developments and summits like this and trade wars 
in the way that we always do, you know, let's let's analyze this. Was the policy good? Was the execution good? Were the optics good? Was the preparation good? Was the process good? And so forth. But, you know, when I look at all of this, I, 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 I've been particularly concerned um, in the past week that, that, that we may have crossed the line where that kind of analysis is not as helpful as it could be. Now, just think about the past week. The president goes to Canada and attacks our closest ally, literally and figuratively in the world, the Canadians, uh, attacks the G7, is seen as an outcast, behaves like an outcast, and tops that off by suggesting Russia should be part of the G7, <coughs> and that the, the, the people of Crimea actually wanted to be part of Russia, um, spouting Putin um, talking points. <coughs> At the same time, he goes to Korea, and he goes to Singapore, and he hails the leader of North Korea, and he says, you know, maybe he's not such a, a bad guy after all, not such a killer, it's been a tough job. Only 10,032-year-olds could possibly rise to the challenges of the job, and if he, you know, is a mass murderer along the way, well, you know, I still think he's a talented guy, and made all these concessions to the North Koreans. At the same time, on our border, mothers and children are being separated, literally breastfeeding children torn away from the breasts of their mothers. Children are putting, put in internment camps for children on the border, um, and citizens uh, or, 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 or legal uh, residents of the country with green cards are now being deported um, for violations many, many years ago. Um, and in the State Department, and again, this is all just this week, there's a report um, from uh, the, the uh, Foreign Policy magazine, where I used to work, uh, by Colin Lynch and, and, and Robbie Grammer about a woman who works there, a Trump appointee, who's making a list of the people in the government, in the State Department, who are loyal and who are disloyal to Trump, you know, kind of a, an enemies list inside the, the State Department. And I could go on and on. You know, you had the German foreign minister and the Canadian foreign minister making speeches, lecturing the United States and essentially saying the U.S. isn't leading anymore. And, you know, at a certain point, don't we have to stop and say, this isn't normal. This is dangerous. America's leadership role in the world is actually at risk. America's moral standing in the world is actually at risk. This is not a political difference between Democrats and Republicans about how to handle it. We've gone off the board. We're in new territory. So, Nick, what's your reaction to that? David, my reaction is that um, we are in dangerous waters in American foreign policy. And I, I'd put it this way, and I agree with everything you said. If you look at Donald Trump now, he's doubling down, and Ed referred to this on a lot of bets, in four specific areas, he is fundamentally changing the way that America operates in the world. And in these four areas, there's been a Democratic-Republican consensus since the end of the Second World War. The first one, of course, is allies. 
allies in NATO, allies in East Asia are not cost centers. Donald Trump says they cost us money. They're weakening us. Actually, they magnify and expand American power. And they're the power differential between the United States and Russia and the United States and China. We have allies. They don't. And Peter Baker had a, I think, a very apt line in, in the New York Times this week. He said he's making enemies of our friends and friends of our enemies. And um, I worry that this is a really bad week for us. When you have the American president attacking the allies, the European allies in Canada, blowing up the G7 summit, and then making the most extravagant and unwise and foolish comments about his new friend, the great man Kim Jong-un, that's a jarring juxtaposition. And you can bet that every allied government, and I think citizens of these countries, just look at Twitter and Facebook this week, have noticed that we're sucking up to dictators, and yet we're denigrating our allies. So he is fundamentally weakening our alliances, and that's dangerous for America. The second thing that he's done, David, he, our trade policy is in complete disarray. He is dismantling the WTO framework that has been critical to world trade. He said no to every trade agreement. We'll see what kind of decision he makes on NAFTA, but he's not replacing it with anything. Third, and, and Ed referred to this, the other passion that he's brought to the presidency is close the doors to immigrants and refugees, particularly those from Muslim countries, which I think is un-American, denies the existential nature of our e pluribusunum society. And fourth and finally, David, the fourth big change he's making, he's not defending democracy like Ronald Reagan did. Democracy is under attack, obviously, in Hungary and in Poland and the Czech Republic and the right-wing populists contesting in Western Europe. Donald Trump hasn't lifted a finger to help Angela Merkel or Emmanuel Macron or the leaders of Eastern Europe trying to fight the populist wave. And, and I think that's very dangerous because if we stood for anything since the Second World War is that we do support and promote democracy. So I worry that he's undercutting these pillars of American foreign policy. And I worry about the Republican Party because I think if you poll the Republican senators and the consequential Republican members of the House who are on the big foreign affairs and defense committees, they would not agree, actually, with what Donald Trump is doing in these four areas, but they don't want to say it. So we need leadership in the Republican Party as well as the Democratic Party to bring us back to a normal, uh, much more enlightened, obviously, American way of looking at the world. So, so, Julia, let me turn to you. Similar question. I won't restate it with with the uh, trademark verbosity that I framed it at the beginning. But, but, but that we have essentially gone off the rails here on a moral level as well as on a policy level. And, you know, I listed the past week, but I didn't, you know, I didn't get into the fact that, you know, the, the, perhaps the, the most stunning foreign policy development of the past couple of years was that we were attacked by Russia and the president of the United States alone among members of the policy community, including his own team, seems to think that's not important and really isn't pushing to do anything about it. And on and on. And I'm just wondering, at what point do we stop treating this as foreign policy um, like it's been practiced or, 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 or domestic leadership like it's been practiced and start saying, wait, this is an emergency. There's something here going on that's, that's dangerous and in an acute and, and rapidly developing way. Well, you and I had this discussion at a panel last summer at Aspen, at the Aspen Ideas Festival, if you recall. And it was um, 
you know, you and I were saying, well, this isn't normal. We can't just talk about the ins and outs of policy and just pretend that this is kind of noise. This is not business as usual. This is really alarming. The problem with, with Trump is that he has exhausted even the people, you know, the, the kind of the gatekeepers, the, the diplomats, the politicians, the, the journalists, the commentators, because every day there is something so crazy that we've been at 11 for well over a year now. Um, I would argue almost three years now since Trump declared he was running, but really since he won in November 2016. So about a year and a half, we've been at 11 every day. And I don't know about you, but I'm tapped out. I have no more 11 in me. And I think that's the case for a lot of people. And I think a lot of people, you know, who aren't, who, who don't follow this stuff professionally have tuned out. I even know, you know, um, uh, a good friend of mine, a mentor, old-timer at the Washington Post, has also tuned this out. He's like, I just, you know, I used to cover the White House. I used to run foreign bureaus for the Post, and I just can't. I just, I'm sitting in my basement working on my books, reading novels, because I just can't. And if somebody like him is saying that, then I think the population at large is even more susceptible to feeling that kind of fatigue and especially fatigue with our alarm. And I think Trump capitalizes on that. I think the the fact that we get outraged and we're alarmed and we scream about, you know, this is this is not okay. The UN is saying that we're, you know, engaging in barbaric practices by separating mothers and children. You know, it's um, and Trump continues plowing right through this. So what what value does our outrage have, again, except for exhausting us and exhausting everybody? Well, you know, Ed, you know, as, as it has, as happens uh, as we record these podcasts, almost every podcast, you know, which is twice a week, sometimes three times a week, news breaks during the podcast that normally would be the dominant story for uh, you know months, and for the, all the reasons that sort of Julia was implying in her comment, gets swallowed alive. So even as we're recording this, and you know, surprise to our beloved deep state nerd listeners, but we you know this is not live, right? So they're listening to it after we recorded it. A story is breaking that the state of New York has filed a suit against President Trump and his family alleging his charity has engaged in illegal conduct, demanding that he make millions in restitution payments, and saying that he should not be allowed, the president of the United States should not be allowed to run a nonprofit in New York State for 10 years. You know, and, 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 and it's like, where do I look? Where, in which direction do I point and scream fire first? Yeah, <laughs> that's uh, you. You pose a lot of difficult questions, um, David. But in a funny way, although uh, that's superficially easy to answer, because you know you just point everywhere and you point to your own hair uh, on, on some occasions, uh, because uh, you know this is just such a omni shambolic cluster, cluster something of a of a, of a rolling presidency. It's, um, a pod it's a podcast, Ed. Oh, you I, can I, actually, you can say what it is. 
Uh, I can say clusterfuck. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I might exploit that and just keep saying it. I'm not yeah. going to quote. I'm not going to quote Samantha Bee though, or, or even Robert De Niro. Um, but the you know the 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 place I would look, the places I would look um, would be to other countries and other nations and to see how they are handling this. Um, uh, you know, I think my former colleague Christian Freeland. Um, the foreign minister of, of Canada, who gave a, a year ago a very bold speech to the Canadian House of Commons saying, look, we love America. We've been with you. You've been you've had our back all along. Um, we hope that you will come back. But we're going to have to act now, at least for the time being, as if you're not there in the way we, we're used to you being there. She made that speech a year ago. And I think she was um, quite far sighted. Um, and I think you're seeing some quite sort of intelligent hedging operations by America's, some of America's allies. You know, I, I'm pointedly excluding Britain from this because it's not really a player um, uh, at the moment whilst, whilst it's absorbed with Brexit. And I would pointedly exclude Italy from it too with uh, its own omni-shambolic um, populist coalition. But look to how America's friends are in sorrow are not in glee, um, hedging against the possibility that, uh, you know, Trump Trump isn't an aberration and that this is a, a longer term um, shift in, in how America engages with the world, that, that this really is, um, we're America, bitch, um, and it's going to be around for a while. And, and, I, I, and I think you will find some silver linings that there are other people upholding or trying to uphold universal values, the universal values America has um, championed, and that that will make it easier for America to rediscover its best self if if that time happens, which I sincerely, uh, fervently hope that it will. Um, let me just ask a side question here. Um, Julia, if I may go to you, we're running out of time, and I, I did want to bring this up. I it's a side story, but but Ed mentioned England. And one of the things that's been interesting in the midst of the thousand stories here in the U.S. in the past week is a story that seems to indicate much stronger Russian ties behind the Brexit campaign in the U.K. Um, and speaks to this fact that what Russia is actually doing at the moment is systematically seeking to involve itself in every Western democracy or every leading Western democracy and undermine it using tools given to it by open societies. And I was just wondering if you followed that story at all and if you had a view on it. Uh, I followed it a little bit. You know, it's, it's not, it didn't really surprise me. I think from the Russian point of view, they're doing exactly what America has done for decades and what uh, its predecessor, the Soviet Union, has done for decades. And this is kind of what Putin was always angling to get back to, where there is that kind of, uh, you know, he outlined it very clearly in, the two in his 2007 speech at the Munich Security Conference, that his mission would be just to not allow America to act unilaterally in the world. And so to him, that means just throwing sand in the gears wherever possible in the transatlantic alliance, in um, the American democracy and local elections in Europe to make sure that anti-Russian uh, leaders don't get elected, that pro-Russian uh, populists have more of an edge. 
doing what they believe is what that this is what America has done all along. Whether or not that's the case, I think is um, can be disputed. But in the Russian from in the Russian mindset, they're just doing what the Americans have done. So to me, it wasn't. I mean, there were long suspicions that they had funded some of the pro-Brexit uh, efforts. Putin has, you know, Putin has been courting, was courting Nigel Farage, who was, who said a lot of nice things about Putin. He was kind of this proto-Trump character in, uh, in the UK. Sorry, Ed, if I'm inaccurate. But um, to me, it wasn't surprising. It's just more of a pattern that we saw with 2014 doing this, which, you know, somebody far smarter than myself said was Putin basically taking the methods he honed domestically to deal with the opposition, to deal with uh, the independent press, and exporting them to the rest of the world. Thanks. We're, we're, we're come up here on the, the, the end of our time, and Nick, I want to turn to you for a kind of a, a last word. You know, you had a lot of experience in the government doing foreign policy. We are a podcast devoted to international issues and America's standing and role in the world. And, you know, you've been there while America was facing real pushback from our closest allies in the context of the Iraq war um, and, you know, on issue to issue beforehand. But I think we're in a kind of new place here where, you know, the allies are against us, we're embracing other people, and the president of the United States is certainly, I mean, you know, you have this New York story breaking, but, you know, Mueller is out there, these other things are happening, is certainly involved in sort of the deepest political scandal the U.S. has seen since Watergate. Now, one of the things I remember about Watergate is the president sort of almost got cut out of a lot of these processes, and Kissinger and others ended up having to manage around him because he was so immersed in them. I'm just wondering, what do you think the effect of a couple more months like this will be on the way America relates to the rest of the world? Or are we just not going to be able to actually do much, and 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 we're going to sort of be sidelined by our own dysfunction. David, I, I think this is a dangerous moment for us, for the American people, because our credibility as the global leader is rapidly diminishing. And I think you're right that this is a fundamentally different crisis. Let's take the transatlantic misunderstandings, well, disagreements of the past uh, couple of months. We've had this before in Suez in 1956, a big breakup between the United States, Britain and France over the invasion, the Euro missile crisis of the early 80s, the Iraq War 2003. I was in Brussels as the U.S. ambassador to NATO. I felt the rejection of, um, of France and Germany at that time. But those were on single issues of profound disagreement, but single issues. I think the, the gulf between the United States and its allies now is. The allies cannot be sure if Donald Trump believes fundamentally in the principles of the alliance, that we are going to support and defend democracy and trade, and that we're going to um, be true to each other as allies. And if he continues in his disruptive way to dismantle these fundamental pillars of who we are and what we do in the world, there's going to be great damage to the West and the Western alliance. And who will profit? a more assertive and aggressive China, a more assertive and aggressive Russia, certainly. And if the United States is a, is a diminished power because our allies can't believe in us, won't believe in us because of what we're doing, 
that's going to have a direct negative impact on American lives, on our economy, on our ability to be successful, to defend against the challenges in the world that we have to defend against. So I, I think this is a very worrisome time. And I, I, I do think we need to go back to first principles. If that discussion has to be led by our elected leaders, but all of us have to participate in this. And Donald Trump is taking us in the wrong direction. I think he's the weakest American president we've had, probably since Warren Harding in the early 1920s. You have to go that far back, someone who's myopic about the world, who doesn't care about the rest of the world, who only sees American policy through the prism of his own personal self-interest. This is It's a shocking time, if you think about it. Um, and I just hope that we can take back the foreign policy, Republicans, Democrats, independents, so that our, our, our country can succeed in the world. Yeah, well, I certainly do, too. Um, uh, I'm very glad you could join us, Nick. I'm very glad you could join us, Pleasure. Julia. I'm very glad that you could be back, as you, as you often are, Ed. Um, clearly, the world swirls around. There's plenty to be concerned about here. It's not normal. Uh, it's not like we've ever faced before. Uh, it does require extraordinary actions. We'll keep talking about it here. We hope that all of our beloved Deep State Radio nerds uh, will keep coming back and the audience will keep growing and growing as it has been. It's an incredibly gratifying experience. I wish it was a discussion of more uplifting uh, topics. Uh, perhaps, Deep State Radio nerds, you've got some uplifting topics you'd like us to turn to. Please Tweet those at us, email those at us, and who knows, you may end up with a mug or a T-shirt as a result of it. Uh, in any event, thanks, guys. Very uh, interesting, if if disturbing, uh, discussion. Everybody will be back again next week, and Rosa and Corey will be back, and 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 we look forward to you joining us again. Bye-bye. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.